We've all heard the saying that the pen is mightier than the sword, but every time we read from one of Paul's epistles, it's good to remember that the author, the penman of those epistles, once lived his life as if the opposite were true. Paul, for years, favored the sword over the pen, and he spent all his energy in directing that sword against the people of God. Paul is described in Acts 9 and verse 1 that we read together as breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. These words show us that Paul, or rather Saul of Tarsus, was filled with such a hatred that his very breath was violence. He was, to use alternate words for the Greek, he was breathing out menace and murder. And this is how he lived his life. Not by the pen, that would come later, but very much by the sword. And yet, because of the amazing grace and power of our God, who had chosen this murderer Saul to be one of his children and one of his disciples, he was very soon, as you read down through Acts 9, thrown off his horse on the road to Damascus, and the murderous breath was taken right out of him. He was made a new creature. His heart became submissive, and that's shown in his words, who art thou, Lord? And then he immediately confessed that Jesus of Nazareth, who identifies himself to Saul, was his savior and says, Lord, what would thou have me to do? And here we see a new convert at prayer, very early on in his Christian experience. Perhaps you have heard, I'm sure you have, as I have heard new converts praying, and that's a wonderful thing to witness. Soon after they've been saved, new life in Christ being evidenced by the breath, not filled with violence or whatever was their habit before, but now filled with prayer to the one true and living God. Well, like every new convert who's praying, and like every new convert, Paul needed the fellowship of God's people. And that's why only a few verses later, we find the Lord speaking to the man called Ananias in a vision and directing him to visit Paul. The Lord knew the fears that would plague Ananias when he was told to go and befriend the number one persecutor of the church in Jerusalem. And so in the command to go, there was all the assurance that Ananias needed that this man really was changed and that Ananias' life was not uh, going to be under threat by making this visit. And that assurance is contained in the little phrase at the end of verse 11, for behold, he prayeth. The Lord wanted Ananias to go and help this fledgling Christian. And he did not say, go and inquire for one called Saul, for behold, he has been born again. Or behold, he is my child. No, he just said, behold, he prayeth. And really that should have been enough for Ananias to go. I hope this emphasizes to you as we come tonight to pray just how vital prayer is. It was given by Christ in the case of the conversion of Saul as the distinguishing mark, the only mark that he gave Ananias, that Saul's heart had truly been changed and he was now a Christian. And it should have been enough for Ananias after he heard those words, behold, he prayeth, to say, to, to just go and obey the Lord and seek Saul, but as we all are, he was doubtful and he needed reassurance, and that came in the next verse or two. But the work in Saul was real. He was now a man of prayer, and as it, it was not a show, because all these years later, now we turn to 1 Thessalonians, now all these years later, after his second missionary journey, or perhaps during that journey at another location, he writes to the believers in Thessalonica, and he's still a man of prayer. He's still continuing on in this vital act of the Christian life. Look at verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians 1. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Throughout this first chapter, Paul reflects on what God did for these pagans in Thessalonica. 
saving them just as he once saved him. And he writes to the church, recognizing in the chapter that the gospel had come to their hearts in power, that it had been applied by the Holy Spirit. He reflects on the fact in verse 8 that the testimony of these Christians had spread far and wide throughout Macedonia and Achaia, and he, he is rejoicing in what God has done for them. And he assures the believers in Thessalonica that he and his colleagues are praying for them. And I was just thinking today that in the life of a typical Christian, and certainly in the life of a free Presbyterian, there's a great emphasis put on preaching, and rightly so. Absolutely. We spend a large proportion of our time in worship listening to preaching, and so we should. But we also spend a lot of time listening to and praying along with others. The minister, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And while we learn much through preaching, we also learn much through times of prayer, when we listen to one another pray. And you and I will never hear Paul pray in person, because we will never meet him until glory. But we do have here recorded some of the features of his prayer for the Thessalonian believers. And we can learn a lot from it. I want you to look at verses 2 and 3, and I want to just leave with you four thoughts that I trust will help us as we come to pray. Four features of Paul's prayer. The first one is that his prayer was comprehensive. It was comprehensive. He says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. If you're like me, you struggle with forgetfulness, and this, of course, impacts our prayer lives, doesn't it? Paul was just a man like we are, and so I think it's very significant that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he can say truthfully he was praying for you all. This letter was addressed to an entire church. Paul's telling them, I'm praying for you all, praying comprehensively. Now, when you find in the New Testament this little phrase, it is an unusual translation of the Greek as it was originally given. It's only used three times in Scripture, this little phrase, for you all. And so that makes it even more meaningful. It gives more weight to what the Bible says here. We can take this very literally, that Paul was praying for every believer that he knew of in that church. God wants us to know that Paul and his colleagues were praying for all the believers. And when you notice at the beginning of verse 2 that Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you all, that means that, and don't miss this, it's very simple, but it's important. They were thankful for everyone in that church. And that should be how we feel about our brothers and sisters as well. There was no exclusion of any believer on the ground of their ethnicity or their cultural practices or their wealth or their personality traits or their abilities. And in every congregation, you will find variation in all of the things that I've just mentioned. But they were praying for them all. No one was left out. And you and I know we are inclined to be partial. And we naturally gel with some people more easily than with others. We're, when we come to prayer, however, that's somewhere where our likes and dislikes get left far behind. And we recognize that we are all to pray for everyone. We are to pray for every brother and sister. Are we to suppose this evening that there was no one in Thessalonica who didn't rub well together? Was there no one in the church in Thessalonica that had perhaps been difficult to handle for Paul, Silas, and Timothy? Human nature being what it is, there probably was, but they didn't leave them out. No one was excluded. They made an effort in their prayers to be comprehensive and to include everyone. And if it is the case that there's someone for you, child of God, who you have trouble including, trouble praying for, 
because perhaps there's some tension between the two of you, I think that if you made a specific point of praying for them, it would come more easily to you to include them and to, to get along with them after that. It's important that we do this. We need to remember that every believer is a child of God, someone whom Christ has purchased with his own blood. And during his high priestly prayer, Christ prayed comprehensively. Turn back, please, to John 17. Christ prayed comprehensively, just as Paul did. John chapter 17, verses 9 and 10 show us this. Christ is praying to the Father, and he says in John 17 and verse 9, concerning his disciples and his people, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Do you see the beginning of verse 10? All mine are thine. Every one of Christ's people belong to the Father. Every last sheep, no matter how wayward, every last saint, no matter how holy, equally belong to the Father. And he prayed for them all. And thank God we have a Savior who loves us all with a perfect love, who prays for us all and never makes an exception, never leaves anybody out. He died for all of us, his people. He prays for all of us. Look at verses 20 and 21 in John 17. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. To pray comprehensively for God's people is very Christ-like. It was his desire that all his children be one. And as Psalm 133 teaches us, it is where the brethren dwell together in unity that the Lord commands the blessing. So Paul's prayer was comprehensive, and so should ours be. Secondly, Paul's prayer, turning back to 1 Thessalonians 1, was constant. He says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all. And again, our minds go straight to the Lord Jesus of whom the same word is used, the same Greek word is used in Hebrews 7.25. If you want to turn that verse up, let's read that together. Same word is used in the Greek, but it's translated differently. Hebrews 7 and 25, where we read of the Lord Jesus, and it says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. The person of our Savior, the God-man, is an eternal person. He ever liveth. And in this passage, the author contrasts Christ, the great high priest, against the Jewish priests whose ministries ended, whose intercessory work ended when they died. But the Lord Jesus Christ, who has conquered death, is now in heaven where he prays for his people unceasingly. He ever liveth to make intercession for us, all of us. And he does so constantly in the absolute sense of the word. And there is not a single moment when the Lord Jesus Christ is not praying for us, his people. And so when you combine these first two thoughts, we can say this. In every moment, Christ is praying for every believer. His intercession is perfectly constant. He's constantly presenting the plea of his atoning sacrifice before God. And it's in our hymnal. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. 
And as we should, Paul was following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't, you don't need me to tell you that we can't pray in every single moment without ever ceasing as our Lord Jesus can. But yet it was Paul's habit because he testifies here under inspiration. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all. And then he says at the beginning of verse 3, remembering without ceasing. And so Paul is in the habit of constant prayer, praying regularly. This was not something about which he's being hypocritical. And we need to take note, especially those of us who have the responsibility to pray for others. And I'm speaking to many mature believers here. I'm speaking to grandparents and parents. I'm speaking to uh, leaders and office bearers and Sunday school teachers and you name it. We all have responsibility to pray for other people. We have a ministry of intercession for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. And we should do so as Paul then, at the end of this little epistle, tells the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. Paul knew that it was important to be steadfast in prayer. If he was to find, or sorry, to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How do you find something? You look for it. You ask for it. And if we will have the needed grace for daily living, then we need to ask for it constantly. Thirdly, Paul's prayer was conscious. He says in the beginning of verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's true that we think about the things that we love. If we want to know what is gaining the, gaining the preeminence in our hearts, sometimes we have to examine ourselves then we just need to assess what do we think about the most. We think about the things we love. And Paul loved these people. He calls them in verse 4, brethren, beloved. And that is the love that is described by the Greek word unconditional. A love that is given without requirement. And this is a real godly affection for these believers. And he demonstrates the reality of that love by how conscious he was of their lives. He demonstrates in verse 3 that he had observed certain things about them, three graces, faith, love, and hope, and how those graces displayed themselves in work and labor and patience. We'll come to that in just a moment, but one, just, I want to point out that the consciousness of Paul for these believers is shown in the word remembering. The literal meaning of the word remembering in verse 3 is recollect, rehearse, or exercise the memory. Paul was, in other words, making effort to think about these individual believers and their circumstances. He was no longer with them in person, but he was doing all that he could to be aware of them and to jog his memory and to recollect all that he could in order to pray intelligently and specifically. And here you have, if you ever felt like you needed it, a biblical basis for prayer lists and prayer cards missionary boxes, calendars, and so on. None of you, I'm sure, would ever think that those things uh, were not good. But here is a verse you can point to and just appreciate how those things help us in our prayer lives. We need our memories to be jogged if we are to remember all of God's people. And so the prayer life of the apostle is not characterized by being haphazard. And this is where we can apply it to our prayers, even in the church prayer meeting. He prepared. He was conscious of what needed prayer, and then he prayed for it. 
He did not pray in a haphazard way. This verse uh, 2 also contains the word mention. And the only person that uses this word in the whole New Testament is Paul. And the idea in the word mention is rehearsal or recital. You know those things, parents, that you like to go to when your child is learning an instrument. And when they have their grade one violin and nothing delights your ears more than all the squeaks and groans, you go to hear a recital. Well, they go over something they've learned. Paul was going over what he had learned about these people, and then he was praying about it. And he was encouraging them when he wrote this letter because they could see this man hasn't forgotten us. Point of application there, obviously, to missionaries, to people who serve the Lord elsewhere. And they might think, does anybody remember me? You can get in touch and say, we're remembering you in prayer. We haven't forgotten you. This, of course, reminds us of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we sang it tonight in hymn 134. If Paul was one who was recollecting the believers and all their needs, then how much more the Lord Jesus Christ. When we sing in hymn 134 in verse 2, my name is graven in his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Can the Lord ever forget us? Never. Not even for a moment. Paul was conscious of three things. I've mentioned them already, but for time's sake, I won't go over them in detail. Just simply to point out that these are graces that we should seek after. We should exhibit the work of faith, the activity that flows from faith. We should show a labor and a sacrificial giving of ourselves because we love the Lord and we love the Lord's work. We also should exhibit patience. And if I could just dwell on this for a moment, I think this is a very, very important thing that the Christian life shows, especially to unbelievers. The patience of hope, verse 3, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is our hope? Or who is our hope? It's Christ. And it's his return. It's the hope of eternal life, which is the gift of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's with that prospect in mind that we are enabled to endure. That word patience in Greek means cheerful endurance. I met a woman in the congregation of Balamina who um, was, was witnessed to by a colleague of hers who attends the free in Risharkin. And she said to me that the thing she noticed about that lady was her godly silence. And so sometimes we wouldn't have to say anything, but people notice the grace of God in our lives. I hope that encourages you to keep on living for the Lord. Finally, however, we come having noticed that Paul's prayers and that of Silas and Timothy was comprehensive and conscious and constant, we want to see, fourthly, that Paul's prayer was candid. It says at the end of verse 3, in the sight of God and our Father. And I take this um, not because I've decided this is the best way, but to go with the majority of sound commentators that what is in the sight of God and our Father is Paul's prayer, as opposed to, if you look at verse 3, as opposed to the work, labor, and patience. Well, obviously, that's done uh, before the sight of God as well, but uh, we take this to mean that Paul was praying in the sight of God and our Father. And this underlines that prayer is something that must be sincere. It must be candid, for we are before the Lord. John Calvin said, all mere pretense must vanish when persons come into the presence of God. You know that God is omniscient. You know that there is no point of his entire creation that is hidden from his sight. 
But prayer is special. Prayer is our entrance by faith into his very courts. And so we come before the face of God. We come in his sight when we pray. Let us be candid. Perhaps you've been in the workplace and you've noticed someone who was challenged by their manager about a task that was supposed to be done. And maybe they were bluffing a bit. And they gave the impression, yes, it's ongoing. And they were bluffing. They weren't being candid. And then perhaps someone entered the room that knew the situation well enough and the, uh, the employee realized, I'm not going to pull the wool over this man's eyes or this woman's eyes. It's time to cut the nonsense. And they begin to speak in a way that is more candid, just saying it as it is, being honest. We should always be honest before the Lord in prayer. In the sight of means in front of. Nothing is hidden from God. And I, um, I have personally always been very blessed by people who come in prayer before the Lord in a way that is described as candid. They're not being showy. Of course, on the other hand, they're not being irreverent, but just praying simply, approaching God, as it says in Hebrews 10 and verse 19, with boldness. No one was more candid, more plain speaking than the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what it was that was said of him. He spake as one having authority and not as the scribes, not as the Pharisees who just wanted to multiply words and pray long prayers at the corner of the temple where everyone could see them. Prayer shouldn't be like that. Prayer, when we come before the face of God, should be earnest and candid. Turn with me as we close, please, to Hebrews 10, just for a final thought. Hebrews 10, we read there that because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be candid before God. And that's an amazing thing. Because without the Lord Jesus Christ, we would never dare to approach God. In fact, we could not. But because of the one who came speaking plainly, speaking truthfully to men, telling them that they were sinners and they needed to be saved, we can, we can be candid with God. Us, born in sin. Hebrews 10 and verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. The word boldness means frankly. Speaking plainly, speaking honestly to God, it means that there's no ambiguity. It means that we do not need to fear rejection because we don't come before God on any other basis but the blood of Jesus Christ, by the new and living way. And see, because of him, believer tonight, he whose prayer for us is all-inclusive, it's comprehensive. Not one child of God has ever forgotten about, not even for a single moment. We can come and be candid before God, and that's what we want to do tonight. That's, I'm sure, what you want to do. As you come now to the Lord in prayer, come and present before him the things that need prayer, the needs of the work here, those people on your heart who need to be saved, all the things that have to be brought before him. There's much we can pray for. We will do well to emulate the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy tonight, but better still, we can look to the Lord Jesus and seek to pray, even as he does, and to be like him in this also. I trust the Lord will bless his word to your hearts. We do just, we do just want to come now, please, in a time of prayer. I'll lead you off briefly, and then we will ask you to join in one by one 
um, with that sense of continuing, and we trust that the Lord will help us in our time of prayer. Let's come before his face, please.